Good morning. Welcome to another episode, our final episode, I suppose, for this session, for this season of the week ahead. Obviously, today there's just there's been a lot to happen. There's a lot to discuss. It is, of course, signy die. So the last day of the 140 day legislative session. The 88th legislative session, the regular session, might come to a close, but there's the potential for a special legislative session. We'll talk about that here in a second. Happy Memorial Day uh, to folks um, as well. There is a lot, Tim, to talk about. I guess it's probably best to kind of set the stage for what why there might be a special legislative session, Um, you know, as of, I guess, last night, really the night before, but as of last night, um, considering kind of one of the more final deadlines, um, you know, only three of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's seven emergency items have officially gotten across the finish line, right? The legislative finish line. Those include, uh, you know, COVID restrictions, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a second, school safety legislation and fighting Fentanyl. The ones that did not make it across the finish line include cutting property taxes, education freedom, school choice right, ending revolving door bail, which this is a perennial uh, uh, seemingly emergency item that's failed multiple times now, and then doing more to secure the border. So before we get into the nitty gritty of that, Tim, what are your overall thoughts on those seven issues? Well, you know, obviously I'm going to to push, to push back a little bit on even if those three are wins, right? So, uh, you know, from my my perspective, you know, COVID restrictions uh, is is really just kind of nonsense, right? Like uh, the fact that we're we're dealing with a pandemic that's been over for multiple years, and that you know there was efforts to you know prevent COVID vaccines and prevent COVID mandates. Guess what? There's not going to be another COVID pandemic because that's not how pandemics work. It's run its course. And uh, the next pandemic, whatever it will be, is not going to be COVID. And so the smarter thing to do if we were serious about medical freedom and about uh, you know individual liberty and protecting from lockdowns would be to pass restrictions that have to do with all diseases, no matter what they come. So, you know, although a lot of people will go and, and champion this as a big victory, I really don't see how this helps Texans in the future. I think it's a feel-good bill, uh, and, and there's a few that passed, but I don't really think it's going to help folks out. It's kind of like after the fact, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, you know, those things we don't have anymore, uh, we're, we're not going to allow them anymore, right? Um, school safety, you know, I, I I don't really have an issue with that. I think we, we need to do more uh, to harden schools. Obviously, it's a problem we need. I would say, you know, at bare minimum, armed guards. We need to rethink the structure of of government schools uh, to prevent you know these tragedies. The only thing that's going to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Uh, I firmly believe that. Uh, I think there's more to be done there, but we can uh, we can applaud that. And then fentanyl, you know, yet again, I think this is kind of a non a nonsense uh, relief. Yeah, are they bad? No, not necessarily. But the real problem with fentanyl is the border. Uh, it's pouring across the border and we did not secure the border. And so if we really truly want to fight fentanyl, then you have to secure the border and prevent its influx into Texas. And so, you know, although, you know, I'm not all those reforms bad, they're just ineffective. They're not going to stop the flow of fentanyl in uh, Texas. Now, we I think I believe we increased penalties and a few other things, which, like I said, not bad reforms. And of course, you know, the other four, I mean, just an abysmal failure. Um, by the Texas legislature. Uh, the fact that we had a $33 billion surplus, we did not cut property taxes at all. School choice uh, didn't even really have a chance all session. It didn't seem like, right? Uh, it, even Governor Abbott's bail reform didn't make it. Uh, and of course, you know, 
securing the border, right? Which which encompasses a lot of problems in Texas. And so um, this is, you know, it, it's, and I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, but this is one of the worst sessions I've ever seen. Like as far as, uh, from our standpoint, from a fiscal standpoint, right? Not only were there a number of non-fiscal issues that did not pass, uh, they had a historic opportunity to provide um, taxpayers with property tax relief. And they simply didn't. And of course, we'll talk about the corporate welfare here in a minute. I won't get ahead of us, but those those are my general thoughts. You know, I think certainly if I'm Governor Abbott, right? And you know, if if we have to think that the point of a you know the state of the state address naming emergency items is that you know for hopefully more than just a name, they are in fact emergency items, and to only really have three of your seven pass, and and as you said to your point, right, really at least two of those three are more kind of narrative setting. They don't really have much of an effect. Um, you know, gosh, if, you, if you're Governor Abbott, you have to think, you know, what a what a wasted 140 days, right? I mean, uh, it's absolutely insane. I don't really understand uh, for Republican majorities in both the House and Senate, what is it that they're going to go home to talk to constituents about as victories this legislative session, you know? And, and I think the interesting thing is, of course, they all know the writing is on the wall with regard to an upcoming, you know, almost certainly inevitable special legislative session. How do you how do you go home to your constituents and say, man, it was time well spent uh, as lawmakers before we pivot to corporate welfare? Do you have any initial thoughts? Well, I, I think I think you're right. I think that's where they're all calling. Please, special session, please. Like, I think everyone knows they, they failed Texas. Right. And and because of politics and because of a lot of nonsense, corrupt nonsense uh, that was happening in the, the Texas House, but really the entire you know legislature as a whole, uh, they failed Texas. And so I think a lot of them are scared to go home and face their voters. And so they're hoping that Abbott will call an immediate special session or one very soon so they can come accomplish more so they don't have to go home and tell, you know, Texans, hey, we literally gave corporations billions of dollars, but we gave you nothing. We did not secure our border. We did not uh, give you school choice. We did not uh, do almost everything you asked us to do. And so uh, I think there is fear there. And I think um, I think you'll see that in the coming weeks as the, as the continued calls for special sessions uh, ramp up. If Abbott doesn't just call one almost immediately, we'll, we'll see him in the coming days. You know, we talked about, obviously, the things that they did get done. Um, obviously, it was not a named priority of Governor Abbott's, but you had something happen interesting and really depressing last night, which was the House, the Texas House specifically, suspended rules, right, because they had already passed a significant deadline, suspended rules to consider the conference committee report for House Bill 5. Now, of course, we have talked about House Bill 5 ad agnosium. That is the largest uh, corporate welfare revival effort this legislative session. There was a bunch of corporate welfare this session, but the biggest bill was House Bill 5, specifically to revive the um, now defunct and ended Chapter 313 tax abatement program. You're not allowed to call it a Chapter 313 tax abatement revival effort, but that's exactly what it is. And the Texas House, right, decided or sought fit to suspend rules so they could bring up the conference committee report. And it's important to note that they did this before considering property tax relief conference committee report, right? They didn't suspend the rules uh, to necessarily consider that as of yet. But 
They they brought up this conference committee report. That suspension received 120 yes votes. Only 18 people voted against suspending the rules for that. And then they subsequently voted to adopt the conference committee report by a vote of 100 in favor and only 36 in opposition. The Texas Senate, of course, also, they're also complicit in this. Granted, they don't operate under the same rules, but they adopted the same conference committee report by a vote of 26 in favor and only five against. And of course, that means it's now passed both chambers and it heads to the governor's desk. I think we're for all intents and purposes, he's expected to sign it. You know, I, I think the estimation yesterday, I think uh, Vance Ginn, PhD economist, put out on Twitter that he estimates over $10 billion in corporate welfare was passed this session. What are your thoughts on this, Tim? Well, I, I kind of think it shows what they what they think about voters and taxpayers, and I think it shows who they're serving, right? The the fact that they you know, spent so much time and effort trying to ram this piece of legislation through that both political parties oppose, that the people of Texas oppose, when the people of Texas are drowning in property tax relief, and they this was almost it was basically essentially dead yesterday, and this is one of those ones we call the the zombie bill, right? Which it comes back to life. And we can only assume because of pressure from corporate lobbyists to get billions of dollars in tax abatements. The, the sad and disgusting thing is that, one, uh, they like you said, you know, they, they prioritize this before property tax relief when we have a $33 billion surplus. But even more disgusting is the amount of people that voted for this. When you look at the Senate, five, only five people only 36 people in the House opposed this nightmare of corporate welfare. I mean, it is just the, the lack of respect and I think the, uh, the fearlessness uh, of them. I, I, I genuinely hope that the people of Texas get their act together and vote some of these people out. Because what this session has proved to me, especially with this corporate welfare boondoggle, is that they are completely fearless. They think that they can do whatever they want. They think that they can go and, uh, you know, pay all of their crony corporate friends and give them billions in tax relief and just leave us out high and dry as as taxpayers and as voters. And we're not going to do anything about it. And you know what? For the most part, that's been the, the, the truth for the last couple of cycles. I do think that there is a different feel. One, we have a presidential primary coming, so people are getting worked up about that. And I think there's been a, a large spotlight on all of the stuff they've been doing this session. And it does appear as though people are pretty angry right now. And so we will see, but I can tell, you know, uh, this specifically, the only thing that's going to stop any of this is by getting these people out of office, by replacing them with better reps or new reps, or you know what, any rep. Uh, because they, I think they just feel as though they're invincible and there's nothing uh, that that is going to cause them uh, to, to get unelected. They can pass whatever they want. They can screw over taxpayers as much as they want. And they're just fearless. And, and you know, I, I'm always, a, so I want solutions, right? We, we both, I think, you know, policies. we want to solve the problem that Texas government is growing too much. And I am just convinced that it cannot happen with these people in office, we must get, you know, as many of them out of office as possible. You know, I think the big takeaway here for me, and I think this is a good segue to our next topic, right, is that they did this. And this, of course, what the what the House Bill 5 does is it 
allows school districts to provide property tax abatements to specific industries, specifically large corporations that qualify, right? And what those tax abatements do, because we're not also forcing that school district to, uh, let's say, cut spending, is that it, it only increases the burden on the individual property taxpayer, right? That doesn't qualify for such an abatement. Now, what's in, you know what, what's crazy about that is, of course, they prioritize that legislation ahead of individual property tax relief. Uh, tax relief that we talked about now multiple times. And, you know, it wasn't for lack of, of time, right? I mean, they, they had, uh, obviously, you had the House's prioritized version for what they deemed as property tax relief, uh, specifically focused on things like the, um, uh, the the appraisal limits, right? The threshold lowering from 10 uh, to, to 5%, the cap. Uh, you had the Senate, of course, pass a package of bills uh, specifically focused really on the homestead exemption. Uh, those passed. You had about a month's time frame of like a stalemate between both legislative chambers where they wasted the time, frankly, doing childish memes to each other, right? On social media. And then you had, I think it was at the end of, not last week, but the week before, the House voted out Senate Bill 3, right? They had, they of course, changed it. Senate Bill 3, as it passed the Senate, was focused only on a homestead exemption increase. The House made that bill better, right, to their credit. They, they of course, incorporated this kind of fusion of approaches. They added their appraisal cap. Um, priority in there. They increased the amount of the homestead exemption itself. They, in, you know, they they included the very large form of uh, maintenance and operations uh, compression for school district M and O, which of course is something we favor and we've talked about several times. That passed the House. Uh, you know, the Senate didn't do anything with it uh, for you know the the days afterwards. And then we get into last night, and suddenly we hear that there might be some late night deal. Right? It was like 10, 10.30 p.m. Of course before the midnight deadline. And, uh, you know, you see, obviously, that both the House Speaker and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, uh, it almost seemed like they got called like little children to the governor's office, right? And they come out of the governor's office, and very obviously, a deal was not reached. The House gabbled out, right, at 11 p.m. or whatever it was. The Senate, you know, 10 minutes afterwards, gabbled out before the midnight deadline. And here we are. We have, quote, unquote, no deal on property tax relief. Um, you know, that means we're going to end the end the legislative session and a squandered opportunity, to your point, with a nearly $33 billion surplus to where the only property tax relief that taxpayers will get is the, you know, 5.2 or $5.3 billion of old property tax relief that uh, that that's in the budget to compress M&O. Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, first thought is like, what are they going to do when they can't lie about the numbers? And, and inflate their numbers and add that $5.3 billion that passed four years ago. Uh, now that the budget is passed, right, when we go into a special session, and I'm under the assumption that they, they have to call a special session and deal with property taxes. There is no way that they are going to be able to get to primary season and have let the taxpayers of Texas languish and be pushed out of their homes while giving massive corporate welfare to corporations that honestly, many of them hate conservatives all across the state. And so I find it extremely unlikely. As a matter of fact, I tweeted yesterday, I'm like, no way they're stupid enough to not pass property tax relief. Well, guess what? Yeah, they are stupid enough. They did not pass it. People are angry. Uh, every every person I know in Texas, I, I have people in my neighborhood, they're like, hey, oh, we're so excited. There's property tax. Well, no, just kidding. There's not. 
And so I fully expect very, very quickly a special session to happen over property tax relief. But, you know, I do find it kind of funny that they spent most of their, you know, we kind of had back and forth with lawmakers and we had back and forth with their one pagers and all along the way, whether it's the Senate or the House, they they for some reason felt it necessary to lie about their numbers and to inflate their numbers by 5.3 billion, which is uh, what you just talked about, the compression that was dedicated to the budget in 2019. They, they think just, just because it's in the budget, well, we can just add that to our total. The reality is why, why, why? Even the last form of, of property tax relief when they amended SB3, they got up to, I think like 16.3 billion in compression, which is commendable. And I think everyone's going to say, hey, Good job. Of course, we want more. We want a path to a didn't accomplish that. But no one's going to say, oh, you scum. You're, this is the worst ever. I mean, we, we were like, hey, listen, we commend you. Thank you for giving you know, a decent amount of property tax relief. We want more. And to get past that technical threshold of the largest in history, you are going to have to provide more than $20 billion in new compression or new relief, whether that's a combination of compression or homestead exemption. Uh, but they just kept using that 5.3 number because I think they think it made them sound better. But now that the budget's been passed, are they going to continue to do that? Right? Like, I, I think, you know, now they're going to kind of be forced to only use new compression or new homestead exemption. And so I think that bodes well for taxpayers. Um, but, you know, just really disappointing, really disappointing that that we had 140 days to pass uh, desperately needed relief. And not only did they not pass it, they passed the most massive amount of corporate welfare they've ever passed in the history of Texas and helped out all of their corporate buddies and left taxpayers out to dry. They, they must and have to do something if they want to save face going back and campaigning in primaries. Well, not only did they pass the largest amount of corporate welfare seemingly in Texas history, they also passed the largest spending increase in Texas history, right? House Bill 1, the General Appropriations Act, when it left the Texas House of Representatives, was a little bit over $302 billion, almost $303 billion in all funds. When it left the Senate, that had increased to um, about $308 billion in all funds. It goes to the conference committee, comes out of conference committee, and of course, they asked to go out of, the bound, out of bounds comes out of conference committee, and that total has increased to over $321 billion, which would technically, by both our research and research from folks that we contract with, seemingly is the largest increase in government spending from the last biennium in Texas history, right? And the House adopted the conference committee report by a vote of 124 in favor and only 22 uh, lawmaker, House lawmakers opposed. That was only four Republicans voted against that. The Senate adopted that same conference committee report by a vote of 30 in favor and only one against. And there were no Republicans opposed to that. So theoretically, you, you could say, because, because Republicans have been in control of the legislature for now two decades, not only have they slowly grown government over those two decades, but they have grown government even larger than at any time before this legislative session, Republicans did that. What are your thoughts? Where are the fiscal conservatives? That is my thought. When we have four Republicans that vote against the most massive spending increase in Texas history and only one senator that's brave enough to cast a no vote 
on the most blood, you know, bloated and wasteful budget we have ever had in Texas. I just, you know, think where has everyone gone? You know, I think a lot of us got involved passionately in politics, you know, kind of 2008, 2010, the Tea Party wave. And that whole thing was based on we're taxed enough already. Right. We are, we are tired of fiscal irresponsibility. And over the course of the last you know, decade or so, it seems like fiscal conservatives have just vanished from the Republican Party, at least ones that are willing to stand up. You can even look at the federal level and look at this garbage uh, you know, deal that McCarthy struck, you know, that, oh, hey, we cut spending. No, you didn't. <laughs> like, we're still going to increase our deficit and we're still spending a little more. It's not even a break even. It's a little more each year. And so the, the, the Republican Party that used to be known and, and maybe, you know, rightfully so never really has been right fiscally conservative. Um, they don't even try. That's the sad thing. You know, before they would they would say, oh, yeah, you know, hey, we're you know, they would pretend like they're fiscal conservatives when Democrats are in charge or, you know, in Texas, we even had, uh, you know, efforts. Right. That ultimately failed. But they aren't even pretending anymore, which is extremely worrisome to me. And when we talk about things like limited government and the, the principles that this nation was founded upon and that every single one of these Republicans is going to go around in their primary and say, I'm a conservative, I believe in limited government, they are lying to you. They do not believe in limited government. Well, four of them do, right? One of them in the Senate does. Because the reality is when we talk about the metric of growing government, there's only one way to define that objectively, and that is spending. More spending equals more government. If you believe in a limited government, then you must actually, not only should you not spend more, not only should you freeze spending, you should actually be cutting and slashing. If we really think government is too big, and this is something that we've said for, for years, right? This is why we've pitched the frozen budget, which is our bare minimum. Like we should actually be reducing our budget because our budget has more than tripled since 2000, our budget was around 90 billion biennially in, in 2000, and now we're 321, all funds considered, which is more than tripling. I think it's 3.5, right? So 350% growth where population has grown roughly 40% in that same. So we have just expanded government dramatically. And it just seems like, you know, when we look, we look at budget night and what happened on budget night, complete silence, crickets all night long. And this was actually even a better budget than actually got passed, even though it was still horrible. No one is willing to stand up and say, this is outrageous. We are growing government, uh, you know, more than any of us could have ever imagined. I, I, there's no way I would have said, yeah, but it's going to be 321. But I was estimating right, right about where they were, like 300 or 305. Um, but no, we have grown government massively and, and less yet again, you know, to kind of uh, repeat myself, unless we are willing to kick these people out by voting them out of there and hold them accountable, which is the only way that we can. You can't call and sugarcoat and say, hey, please, please. No, if they've proven they can't be trusted, we must get these people out of office. And so, you know, I uh, the budget is done. There's not going to be a special on budget. Uh, it, it is what it is. And so we will now, this is the new baseline. And so, and this is part of the reason why they grow the budget so large is because next go around, when we talk about the spending caps and the percentages, the budget's allowed to grow, we get to grow it that much more. And, you know, uh, I, I, I don't want to take forever talking about the budget, but one of the, re the ways they were able to even kind of get around the spending cap this way 
was because they increased the supplemental budget, right? Which bumps up. There's all these little games they play with the budget. But honestly, for, for most folks, you don't even have to know about all those little tricks that they play on us. All you really have to know is, listen, our all funds budget last go run was $265 billion, which was already too big. And they grew it to $321 billion. It's a travesty. Republicans should be enraged. And we should come out in force and vote these people out and get people who are proclaiming we will reduce the size of government because that is what a fiscal conservative is. That is what somebody who believes in limited government, it, the goal is to reduce the size of government because it is already too big. Let's pivot real quick to some audience questions. I see, Tom, you have requested uh, uh, to speak. Before I uh, accept that, just want to let everyone know, of course, we're, we're happy to have the conversation. Let's make sure to keep the questions short for the sake of the, the podcast and recording, which we'll later convert. Um, so I will give you permission here one second, Tom. Morning, Tom. What is your question? Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. I just wanted to uh, you know, ask you about not not just what's going on in Texas, but Speaker McCarthy. It seems like what's happening in Texas is paralleling what uh, Speaker McCarthy had to say about, you know, we're just going to grow government at a slower rate, and that's going to be acceptable, and you're going to like it. And uh, I, I don't know why we can't get people to actually commit to rolling back government. In D.C., they use coronavirus to say, okay, well, this is going to be the new threshold, the new limit. Uh, you know, this is going to be the new baseline. And it seems like Texas has kind of done the same thing uh, just because we ran this huge surplus uh, that we, we were lucky to have. And uh, to think that we're going to have this surplus year over year over and over again until the end of time, I think is a little wild and crazy. I don't think anybody uh, would, would agree that that's something that we can count on. So uh, it's not just being fiscally conservative to me as it is just being responsible. And I think we have to start framing it that way as a matter of who's leading uh, the House and, and who's actually responsible. And it's a shame that we only had one senator uh, in Texas vote against this budget. But uh, thank you for bringing this to the attention of the voters. And uh, we, we do need to figure out a way to strike up this conversation because they'll come back and tell you this was the most conservative session ever. And, of course, everybody on, in this room uh, realizes that that's not true at all. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, beat that narrative and actually uh, tell people, you know, this is the reality of the situation. Um, and, and it's not just uh, McDade fe uh, feeling either. It is actually these state senators that we're going to have to hold accountable and put the pressure on. So I appreciate you all uh, discussing this. And I wanted to know, my question really is, is how do we uh, form the messaging so it actually sinks into the grassroots uh, because, you know, as, as we all know, uh, when when these uh, elected officials go around and visit all the clubs and they give their speeches, everybody claps and says, oh, thank you. And you're such a good conservative person. But that's simply not the truth. And trying to hold these people accountable, it, it might get this, uh, you know, a, a, a little nasty if you, if you try to argue points like this with these people. So what is effective messaging? Uh, you know, if I encounter one of these senators or one of these reps and just say, hey, man. You know, you're, you're over here campaigning as a fiscal conservative, but you're voting for this massive increase in the budget. You know, what in the world are you doing? You know, what how do how do you have an effective conversation with these people in front of other voters and in front of our mutuals to convince them that what they did was wrong? That's really my question. Thank you. You want to take a shot first, Jeremy? 
Sure. I think the the first thing I would say is on the national level, um, I don't know that I was ever, and I'll, this is just me personally, ever under the delusion that Kevin McCarthy was going to somehow be a fiscal conservative. Um, I, you know, I applaud the folks that kind of stood and held held hostage his election um, in January. Obviously, you know, the Chip Roy's of the world and what have you, and to, to uh, uh, Chip Roy's credit, uh, right, he's obviously opposed to uh, the, the solution, I'm using air quotes, right, but the, what was the deal that was, that was, uh, was cut to this, um, you know, there's a lot of concerns there. Um, it's not necessarily surprising, sadly, I don't mean to be the cynic, uh, but when it comes to something, let's say, like pushing back against lawmakers who uh, want to continue to convey the narrative that they are being fiscally conservative, either on the national or state level, because I think what we've tried to illustrate today to uh, to the credit uh, of the questioner, right, is that, you know, Texas isn't much better uh, when it comes to these sorts of things. I, I think from the outside perspective, everyone likes to kind of hold te- Texas up as a pedestal, as this bastion of conservatism. And to some degree, you know, a low tax, low regulation environment is certainly provided for the Texas miracle. But I think what you saw this session and what you have is lawmakers that are saying one thing, meaning they want to continue the Texas miracle and then creating an environment that continues to stifle that, especially when we're competing against states like Florida and what have you. Now, what would you say at an event to them? I would simply ask, did you vote for the budget? And if they said yes, then, hey, you effectively voted to grow government. See what their response is. Inevitably, it's going to be, well, we've got to fund things like infrastructure and all of these things. And then I would simultaneously ask them about the uh, funding that had already come down from the federal government that they've yet to allocate and use for things like infrastructure, broadband, like all of these kind of nitpicky things that they voted to throw even more money at this legislative session and ask why, ask why they did it um, and and continue that conversation from there. Um, What are your thoughts, Tim? Well, I agree with almost everything you said. I I am going to take the opportunity to shamelessly plug the fiscal index, which we'll be releasing in a couple of weeks. And so we've spent all session long analyzing bills, putting out vote notices, giving everyone kind of as much transparency as we can. And here on, I think June 19th is that they were planning on releasing it. We're still kind of uh, calculating votes and things like that. But the index exists to give an objective metric on who grows government. We mainly score uh, bills that uh, have to do with either taxes or increasing taxes, the budget, things like that. And so one, I would encourage you, you know, if you're getting involved in in primaries to use that. It is a free resource that we provide uh, to, to taxpayers all across Texas. And it has in-depth breakdowns of why we opposed legislation. And your your legislature will your legislator will ultimately get an A through F score. And so that is a very good uh tool that you can use when approaching folks. Uh, now, I would say, you know, ultimately, you know, to, to Jeremy's credit, if you ask them, hey, did you vote for the budget? And they say yes, I would just immediately post them. Uh, because ultimately, it's just it, one, uh, the reality of it is, you know, vast majority, well, there's actually more Democrats that voted against the budget, but it was because of, there wasn't enough, you know, uh, education funding. But the, the reality is, it's very likely that that budget was going to pass no matter what happened. But even with that fact, there wasn't enough people that were brave enough to just vote against it, even even though they knew it was going uh, to pass, right? And so 
I'm, I'm kind of to the point in politics where one, again, I agree with Jeremy that, you know, the federal government's lost. I don't, I don't really think we should focus on the federal government at all. I think that it, it's not even the way that our government was designed to over the president and who's going to Congress and Senate. I think I believe in state sovereignty. I believe in big states. And I think that state government is going to be the one that solves the federal problem with, with, with powerful and strong and courageous state leadership we can push back against the federal government. I think that's where all of our focus needs to be. And I would encourage you in your personal conversations with other voters and other taxpayers that you echo that. Like we have been trying and trying and trying uh, to, to reign in the federal government. It's just beyond corrupt. And I just don't believe that there's any way that we're going to rein that in through voting for specific representatives. Uh, I do think through the 10th Amendment and, and, and other powers that state have, that we can push back. You've seen Florida do this. You've seen, uh, for instance, Colorado back when they legalized marijuana, just completely nullify federal law. And, and then you look at the, the shockwave, right? And how many people followed suit by just saying, we don't really care what you have to say. I think Texas should be doing that on the border. But I, I think overall, to kind of answer your question without you know just ranting uh, for 10 minutes, uh, I, I think the easiest thing to do, and, and, and some people might criticize me for this, I believe that we're kind of to a point where we just need a clean slate. And so to me, although I think there's a few uh, good folks out there, and, and maybe you could use those folks that score an A on, on the fiscal index as an exception to this. But my opinion is, if there is an incumbent, you just vote against them. Because the reality is that 95% of these incumbents, and you can see by that budget vote, they're not fiscal conservatives, and they do not care growing government at all. And so I think it's an extremely safe bet where if, if someone, especially if someone has served two or three or more terms, just vote them out. I don't even care if the person that's running against them, we just need new blood. We need to cycle these people out and we need to send a message to the establishment in Austin that this session was wholly unacceptable. And so for me, you know, and people who represent me, I don't really care what they say. They can argue and they can try to defend themselves all they want, but I will not be voting for incumbents this go round. I will be voting for a new representation because I want to send a message and I encourage everyone else out there, don't even listen to what they have to say. They've already proven what they believe through their vote record. And if you, like I said, if you want to use the index as a guide, those who scored an A or maybe a high B, okay, we can make an exception for them because I think they, they did their best to do the right thing. But the vast majority of all of these, you know, Republicans or people who could proclaim to be, um, you know, uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, they don't believe in what they say they believe. And if they did, they would vote a different way. And so for that, I think what politicians want um, them to get a chance to explain themselves. But there's there's no explanation necessary. Like, you know, actions speak louder than words and the actions that they have given us prove that they are not fiscal conservatives. They do not care about taxpayers and we should vote them out. That's my opinion. Um, the last thing I have, to, of course, is ever, again, as a reiteration, is today is signy die, of course, the last day of the 140-day legislative session. The House convenes here at 11 a.m. The Senate convenes here in about 20 minutes at 10 a.m. Um, you know, it's just a bunch of signing stuff, to be frank with you. There's not much tangible that will really happen. Uh, but wanted to remind everyone that, of course, as we've talked about already several times on here, and of course, if you follow on social, you've certainly seen, it's almost inevitable that they will have a special legislative session. Obviously, we have not got confirmation from Governor Greg Abbott on that. But, you know, with only three of his seven, quote unquote, emergency items getting across the finish line, 
very obviously assuming that they are still, in fact, emergencies as done by the governor, it is likely we will have a special or specials um, going over the next few months. The rumor we have heard, and certainly Tim, I'll, I'll open this up to you in a second, is if it's a special specifically on school choice or education freedom, as Abbott has dubbed it, um, the, the rumor we have heard, of course, is it would be in September, my assumption being because school goes back in session uh, beforehand. But, you know, for things like property tax and all of those sorts of things, timing does matter only because assuming they have a special session, assuming they pass legislation in that special session to address these things, you have to get ahead of certain election uh, timeframes, right? And so, you know, you might recall as an example, the last legislative session in the, I think it was the third special session, they passed their kind of Hail Mary property tax, quote unquote, relief effort that ended up not being much tangible, right? Other than like $182 off your property tax bill. Um, but that wasn't able to actually be put in an election until the following May. And so just want to remind folks that timing certainly matters um, in this sort of thing. Uh, Tim, did you have any final thoughts for that? No, I think you nailed it. I think uh, I think we will see one for school choice. I do think it's very likely to be in September. And uh, I anticipate that if any of these you know, leaders you know, in any of these chambers or Abbott, you know, care about being reelected, they're going to call a special session relatively quickly. I, I'm going to be surprised if within the next two weeks, there's not a special session set at some point in the summer to deal with this stuff. So we'll be patiently waiting. One to remind folks, of course, uh, we will be doing kind of a, a coverage of what the session was, right? A, a summary, a good, the bad, the ugly um, in our final episode of Taxpayer Talks, our weekly audio video podcast on Thursday. So be on the lookout for that. Of course, we talked about the Fiscal Responsibility Index. We are aiming towards June 19th as the release for that. So stay tuned to our website, texastaxpayers.com. Make sure you subscribe because you'll get that uh, delivered directly to your email at texastaxpayers.com slash subscribe. Make sure, of course, if you are not already, to follow us on social media, at Facebook, Instagram, and, of course, here on Twitter, at Texas Taxpayers. We will uh, see you, I guess, uh, hopefully on Thursday uh, for that podcast. This is the last episode of the week ahead.